Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast isn't about horse training. Instead, I want to use this podcast to learn more about what we can do to help mitigate the climate change crisis. Last week, Kate Jackson introduced us to forest schools. Kate is an educator and a climate change activist, so I wanted to talk to her not just about forest schools, but also what it's been like to be involved in the Extinction Rebellion. If you have already been actively involved in some of the many protests that have occurred on behalf of the environment, you're going to love the creative ideas that Kate brings to these nonviolent demonstrations. And if you have only looked on from the sidelines, but wish you could be more actively involved, well then, Kate's energy is going to help you take the first steps in that direction. Of course, one of the reasons for having a forest school experience is we then have children who feel a connection to the natural world. And that brings us to the other topic, which is that of climate change and the Extinction Rebellion. And you became quite active in the Extinction Rebellion. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go from somebody who has has never been lying down in the middle of the street? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm essentially... Uh... A law-abiding person, <laughs> but with strong principles. So, you know, I have grown up from a family background. I've grown up with, a, you know, a strong sense of the importance of protest. So I have been involved in, in protests and demonstrations, you know, for, for quite a lot of, of my life, although not, not particularly necessarily as a young child. But, you know, my, my, my mum, for example, has been involved in things like Amnesty International and and, and lots of organizations to do with human rights and the environmental side of things was something that was, yeah, that came more through me just from a love of animals and things when I was younger. So I've, I've been involved in, in climate action and, and a lot of environmental things. Before I was involved in Extinction Rebellion, I was involved in trans- setting up a transition town locally, which um, again is a global movement, which is based on permaculture principles. So we set up a very successful group in our town and we were quite a young group of people. And we had at one point in a, you know, a small market town of 5,000 people, we had things like give and take days. So these are free kind of exchange uh, events where you bring anything you don't want, you can take anything you do want. And I think at our first one, we had about 10,000 tons of, of items came through. So essentially about diverting things from landfill. Uh, we had a community beekeeping. We've had a community kitchen that ran really successfully, has only really because of COVID really has, has had to take a back burner for the moment. But, but yeah, we have a, a very successful community kitchen where meals are cooked once a month by a team of volunteers. People pay a nominal amount and we feed sort of 60 people with generally locally produced food. It's all, um, usually, yeah, it's all vegetarian. And we've had, I'm trying to think, uh, car free days. Uh, lots of local events. But then the problem was a lot of us who ran that went into careers based on our, <laughs> our interests. So, for example, I live almost opposite. One of the women who set it up with me now runs a, a local cafe where she uses almost, almost exclusively local produce in, in the cafe. One of our original founders runs a company, Hobmadods, who produce British grown beans and peas and pulses and lentils. Uh, I think they've had their first crop of chickpeas this year. So again, about how can we get these these pulses and lentils and things instead of shipping them from across the world, how can we grow them here? They're also involved in agroforestry. So lots of really cool stuff to do with permaculture going on there. So everybody's kind of, and I went into teaching. So unfortunately, the kind of the driving force behind the group, which is how a transition town is supposed to be, a group of founders who set up lots of projects and then they step back and the projects take on a life of their own. 
something I, I I did a webinar recently with a really successful permaculture group in uh, in the Tamar Valley. And I think one of the things that I found really helpful was this realization that projects don't have to last forever and that we shouldn't worry about when something comes up, is successful for a while, and then the people involved go off on new things and new things come up. That that is actually a healthy thing to have happen. That as needs arise, we, projects come up to respond to those needs. Um, so Extinction Rebellion, I think, is very much one of these things that has come up over the last couple of years as a response to the fact that, you know, the science is clear and, and this increasing feeling of frustration that not enough is happening. And so it was very, it's very much about sounding the alarm. That's where the, the phrase, this is not a drill is being used. This idea that while we need everybody doing their little bit and that there is also this huge, this, it's a huge issue and we can all, do our own small bits in our own ways and, and focus on what we can do. But actually, we need systemic change as well. You know, the, the kind of problems we have in education around competition are the same, you know, and, and, and testing and accountability is the same thing we have in lots of areas of, of life and business and our public services. And, you know, all these things overlap, the, the idea of the 1% and the 99%. It's, it's all inextricably linked. You can't really separate all these issues out from each other. And also things around climate justice and social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement. These things are all linked together. It's about justice and caring for people. And so, yeah, Extinction Rebellion kind of came out of that. It isn't, as I said, it isn't a natural fit for me in terms of being uh, defiant, I suppose. <laughs> um, but actually, as as something to to be involved in, one of the things I've really taken from it is uh, regeneration. There's there's a very big awareness in Extinction Rebellion of burnout, and I think it's increasingly being recognised, even in terms of pop culture. Um, there's uh, people might watch, uh, I think, uh, uh, the series uh, Queer Eye, which is just the most joyful hug of a program with these five gay guys who go around and they give people kind of life makeovers and it is they are so positive with people they are so wonderful they really support people and they recently worked with a young female activist who was 18 and already on the point of burnout because she cared so passionately about environmental change but therefore wasn't looking after herself and and I found that that a really moving episode to watch but also really great that it's out there in mainstream media that we're talking not just about hey there's this climate thing an environmental thing that we need to do something about but actually recognizing the toll it's taking on people as individuals and the kind of mental health side of it and that we need to be looking after ourselves and each other and i think that's something extinction rebellion does really well the recognition that everyone is welcome that we care for each other we look out for each other the roles different people play so while I have done a bit of sitting down in the middle of the roads, I have always moved on when given the second warning to move. I've not personally put myself up for a rest. And that that kind of gets talked about as if it's the be all and end all of Extinction Rebellion, that it's all about being arrested. And while that's that is part of it, it isn't exclusively what it's about, that we know that arrests get media coverage. We know that the media coverage of Extinction Rebellion has has had impact. Things, you know, that our UK government declared a climate emergency. Um, councils around the country have declared a climate emergency. Then, you know, we, that we're starting on the, the first demand of getting them to tell the truth. The second demand is getting them to act on the truth, which is going to be a lot harder. Yes. Um, but things, yes. you know, things are changing, but not fast enough at the moment but yeah that's that's sort of why i got involved in it was frustration really um, and just feeling like i want to be on the right side of history with this one and yeah <laughs> i'm pretty sure i am yeah so what would you say to somebody who is you know that that little who just needs that nudge that um to become more active so there there are lots of people who would say, yes, you know, climate change, we need to do something about it. I would love to be able to do something about it, but it's just such a big problem. And 
and that that nudge to move a step closer, a step closer, a step closer to climate activism, to actually being an active part of the solution and not just sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose you could look at activism in two ways. There's activism in terms of how you act in your daily life, and there's yes. activism in the more traditional idea of going out on the streets and being public and vocal. Um, I think in terms of the latter, it's realising that that there's lots of different ways to do that. It could be putting a sign up in your window. It could be, you know, that within Extinction Rebellion, I think it's about... But they, they sort of say that for every one person who's doing the, the sort of the gluing themselves to something kind of action, we need at least 10 people who are doing all of the other things, whether that's cooking the food for people who are camping out um, in the middle of a city. Or in my case, I do a lot of shooting. You know, my, you know, I, as I said at the start, I, you know, I see my I'm an I'm an educator and I'm a talker and a communicator and making links with people is what I really enjoy doing. So I tend to work, volunteer as sort of a steward when we're doing things, say, in London. I, I tend to be part of the kind of the public face and talking to people. And I've had some some really incredible conversations. I think the one that, the conversation that strikes me the most about how everybody can be involved in some in some way and that that we should be less fearful about doing this um, is I was in Parliament Square, so outside the Houses of Parliament in Westminster in London, and had been talking to people all day. And this man approached me who was over six foot tall. He had had sort of a skinhead, no hair haircut, you know, big, big man. And I'm, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know me, quite diminutive, <laughs> quite petite. Yes. So this man approaches me and I thought, oh my goodness, this, this could be interesting. And we got chatting and he was from up north in the UK and kind of a proper, you know, I suppose as you would say, kind of to, to stereotype that kind of man's man kind of person. And he was laughing about the fact that our signs say non-violence because that's one of the, the principles of Extinction Rebellion is that what we do is non-violent. And he was laughing about that saying, oh, when he was young, he used to get in quite a lot of trouble with the law and, and this kind of thing. And he, he he wanted his photo taken next to the sign to show his mates. And, and we were chatting and he was saying, oh, you know, like, yeah, you know, he said, I, I get this. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm down with it. I wish I wish stuff like this happened where I live. This is really great. He said, but, you know, I have this awful job. And I said, oh, well, what what do you do? And he said, I'm a builder. And I was like, so so you build homes? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's not that's not exactly an awful job, is it? You know, we do we do need homes. He said, yeah. But he said. Like, I build awful homes. He said that, he said, I could bore you stupid for two hours about how we could build energy efficient homes that wouldn't require any external, you know, gas or electric, you know, um, electricity for heating or oil, and how we could make these incredible places that would be great places to live using sustainable materials. He said, but you know, I don't, I build these awful homes. I was like, well, yes, but I assume you build them because the company you work for that's what they have you build. And he said, yeah. And and I said, well, this, that's why we're here. That's why we're at Parliament, because actually it requires governments to make policies that require developers to build sustainable homes. And then you could be building the kind of houses that you know you should be building and your expertise could be of use. And we had this fantastic conversation and he was really, really interesting. And I thought for a start, it just, you know, proved to me that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but also just how, you know, everybody has that something to give the, you know, people who have these skill sets who have an incredible amount of guilt about what it is they do for a living could so easily be turned to good. You know, people who work on offshore oil rigs, those skills are starting to be used for wind, offshore wind turbines. You know, the, the, the skill sets should be transferable. And if people's skill sets aren't transferable, we should be doing something about making them transferable so that we can have people employed we don't want people unemployed we want people employed in ways that are positive for the planet and that are benefiting the planet and all of us and making it better um, not worse unfortunately at the moment in the UK the government are just trying to bring into law something that's going to make it easier for developers to build on green spaces and so you know it's a bit it's a retrograde step at the moment what seems to be coming through 
in terms of policy here. But, you know, talking to him was a real positive and made me think, you know, being on the streets, I never would have met him if I'd stayed at home. Yes. I ha yes. You have to be on the street. You have to be talking to people to make those connections and to have those stories to tell. And now I don't know how, how many people I've told his story to, and now I'm telling it to a whole podcast. But, you know, <laughs> he has no idea of the ripple he's caused by telling me this story about how he's just this northern builder who wants to be building sustainable homes but can't because nobody will employ him to do that. He's being employed to build energy-inefficient homes out yeah. of terrible material. So... So yeah, that's an that's a real argument for getting out there and 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 being brave and having those conversations with people and 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 being on the streets. And overwhelmingly, there's good vibes around most protests. You know, of course, the things that hit the media are the ones that go wrong or get go get negative opinions about them because that's what the media thrive on is the negativity. But for every protest that isn't positive, there's so many that are. And my best advice to any climate activist is, if in doubt, find the Samba Band. There is always a Samba Band. <laughs> and there are always good vibes around the Samba Band. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's my, my best piece of advice. <laughs> it, it sounds also, in, in terms of recognize what your strengths are, what yeah. you're good at. Yeah. So if your strength is cooking up a big pot of stew... And that's how you contribute. That's yeah. how you contribute. Yeah. If you're really good at chatting people up, then you go out and you talk to people. Yeah. In the, yeah. yeah. Or if you're yeah. really good, you know, we have people who are volunteer legal observers who document everything and who are who are making sure that, you know, uh, you know, the we we haven't had the kind of policing issues to the same extent as as we're witnessing in the states. There are still issues around policing in the UK and particularly around you know the Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, and race relations. But, you know, there's, there's roles for, for people with legal skills. There's roles for people who are first aiders. Yeah. But the, yeah. If you have any sort of skill set, there is a role. Childcare. <laughs> there are people who, you know, oh, yes. provide entertainment for the children. Printmaking. Artists. Oh, my goodness. Artists. People who can make amazing costumes and banners and artworks. I mean, art is such a great way to interact with people and start those conversations. I... I one of the things I did in London was the Red Brigade, who have now become, it's now expanded, but I was with the, the initial Red Brigade, which was an artist in London who created these people who wear these red kind of robes and they move very quietly and slowly and one person leads the movement and the others all follow. And it's a really, wherever they go, it brings this real air of, people just go quiet and still and and reflect and, and don't know quite what to make of it. There's a kind of confusion around what it is and why they're doing it, but it's it's really powerful. And so now other groups have set up all around the world doing this same this same Red Brigade. So they appear at, at different Extinction Rebellion protests and, and actions. Yeah, so for that, you're being completely silent and, and just following someone else's movement. And it's, yeah, there's, it's, it's so, so incredibly powerful. So yeah, I followed I followed those them through London, being the talker, explaining what it was about and what they were doing and why we were here and, and that side of things. And yeah. of course, right now with the coronavirus, it makes many of these events much more problematic. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we had an action just recently. We've had an action going all around uh, the UK at the moment with children's shoes. So we laid out children's shoes. Um, this has been happening outside council buildings, um, laying out children's shoes in sort of a grid pattern. Uh, with banners, which can be done completely socially distanced by a small number of children, just highlighting, you know, that these are our children's futures. You know, this is our futures. You know, I hope, I hope to, weird statement, I, I don't hope to live long enough to see the impacts of climate change, but given that it's going to be quite soon, I expect to, but you know, our children, the futures for our children that we're bringing them into this world where we know, you know, the, the, the four degrees of warming is now being talked about as, as, as likely, you know, and, and, sitting here in a in a flat where it's 30 degrees <laughs> that that yes. you know does not strike me as a good thing <laughs> you know the changes to weather patterns and, and the children at school you know they've been incredibly inspired by Greta Thunberg at school I mean this is the, this is the lovely thing about making the connections you know I, I was able to share Heather's stories 
with children at school during the bushfires because they were so worried about animals in particular because obviously they're seven and eight and nine year olds so the thing we focused we focused on was the animals the impact on animals and and some children in my class said we want to give up our lunch times and we want to set up a fundraising and we want to raise funds for an animal animal rescuers in australia and they raised a couple hundred pounds having cake sales and things like that and it was wonderful to facilitate them because i really didn't have to do anything they did it all on their own but you know they were so proud of themselves because they they felt like they were being a bit greta <laughs> they were having yes. they were having their moment of ha- doing their action and that's that has inspired the children so much and to see them you know go off and do that some of them have been and done fridays for future act- actions and we've been able to share their photos in the classroom and so so having the children be brave enough to go out and protest and say you know this is this needs to be taken seriously i mean I, it's not I don't think protest is the only solution, but it's part of the solution. I suppose if we talked about positive trigger stacking in terms of forcing action, it's part of the the kind of the series of things that need to happen to initiate action amongst all the other things of individuals taking their own personal actions and using that, I think, like you spoke about with Sarah, using that to inspire other actions that you know, becoming a, a micro expert on one area and sharing that. I think, you know, we need all these things. It's not an either or. We need lots exactly. of different approaches. Yes, exactly. But there is that, there's that hurdle in the sense of it's it's comfortable to, I don't know, plant a butterfly garden in your front lawn. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's a great way to engage with people in your community, you know, people walking by your front yard that no longer looks like the manicured green uh, monoculture that you're surrounded by and you can strike up a conversation about biodiversity and all of that has a ripple effect. And then there's that extra nudge of becoming more active in the community of, of that push for community uh, change and and when you hear someone like yourself talking about what what roles you can play and really how joyful it is that that just that helps with that nudge of this is what you can do this is how it can be done and where they can visualize themselves actually making that first contact with somebody who's putting who's putting together an extinction rebellion protest whether that's right now whether that's being done online or whether it's being done physically distanced within their community that's all to the good yeah and of course it depends the i think one of the things a lot of us grapple with is, is the disruption element and i think one of the things to consider we when we did we did um training in um non-violent direct action so a lot you know to to take part in extinction rebellion you have to agree to the principles of non-violent direct action that you know and if, if it's violent it's not part of what we do but we did an activity with a spec with a spectrum a line in a hall where the the facilitator said different things that could happen and you had to put yourself on a line as to, to how violent you thought that was and within a group of 20 fairly like-minded people, we were in really different places on that line. So recognizing the difference in how one person will consider disrupting traffic to another person. You know, we all have our own our own personal levels of what we think is appropriate disruption. For me, I prefer to do the disruptive activities where the source of power is. So I prefer to be disruptive in London outside Parliament or outside a, a big business. I don't like to be disruptive in my own small market town because that's not where the power is. What I do like to do in my own small market town and that we focus on much more as a group is that kind of positive awareness raising type action where we're, we're um, what does my friend call it? Uh, not joyfully disruptive, delightfully disobedient. <laughs> delightfully disobedient. That's what my friend Liz calls it. And I love that as a way where we've done things like... Um, at a local food and drink festival we dressed up as bees we had children there and we went around and the children were like the crop spraying fumigators and we would go around and they would spray us and we would all die on the pavement in a kind of comedic comedy fashion 
But then we also had little leaflets to give out about what you could do to help bees. And the children had sat and spent hours wrapping up sunflower seeds that, from sunflowers that they'd grown into little newspaper packets and went around handing out sunflower seeds to everybody to, wow. to grow in their gardens. So it was this brilliant combination of we were doing something that kind of got in the way a little bit in that we were lying down, but it was a pedestrianized area and it was a market and there were people doing ukulele band performances and things. So there was kind of general melee and disruption anyway. So people just sort of saw it as street theater rather than that we were really inconveniencing anyone. But then because it's children for a start, they can't say no <laughs> to, the, the, to adorable children just as bees, giving them sunflower seeds and telling them to do things to look after the bees. Um, but it just kind of we but we were also raising that bigger issue around, you know, we're in an agricultural area around crop Spain. And we were having those conversations with adults as well. So there was the there was the plants and seeds in your garden element. But there was the bigger conversation about agribusiness and crop spraying and the impacts that has on and 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 restorative farming and all those sorts of things. So we were able to have to have both conversations happening at the same time. Um, oh, got got a siren going past at the moment <laughs> so uh so yeah so we had like that action and then also we did at an antiques market so you know we just we jump on the back of things that are already happening so in in another market town there was an antiques market so we had our, an antiques of the future store and the local church didn't mind us setting up in the graveyard as sort of outside the church there was a craft fair going on in the church and we set up a kind of fake yeah, display of things that won't be needed in the future. So things like lemon squeezers, because if there's no bees, there's no fruit, so we won't be able to squeeze a lemon. Uh, coffee grinders and things to do with chocolate and all these foods that, you know, without bees and without pollinators, we won't have. So, so it was, it was comical. I mean, the British are known for our dark sense of humor anyway. So it was kind of, uh, political. And then in the end, we, we had this cardboard coffin that people came and drew on and we stuck pictures of fruit and vegetables and things all over it. And then we had like a funeral procession through town where we sang this actually quite joyful, but almost kind of new, we had almost a New Orleans style kind of joyful funeral procession through the middle of the antiques market, up one way and back the other. And, you know, some people joined us, you know, I'm the kind of person who doesn't mind singing down the middle of the street. Other people weren't so keen on singing and just followed us. It was fine. You just participated however you wanted. But on the way back through, someone who was running a stand for, so it's a local fundraising charity for um, uh, war veterans. And you wouldn't think it was our natural allies in some respects. And as we came past, they gave us a free cake and said thank you for what we were doing, that they thought it was really important what we were raising awareness of. So again, it's those unexpected allies that are just those moments where you go, oh, I see hope. Yes. You know, yes. When, when you have allegiances with people you expect to have allegiances with, there's kind of nothing exciting about that because you think, well, yeah, you're already, you're already converted. You're already part of what we do. But when you have those moments where someone who's fundraising for war veterans or someone who's a builder from Oldham goes, I agree with what you're trying to do here, it really makes you think, okay, we're, you know, we're not, we're not off our rockers here. This is a good thing to be doing and it does benefit people. It's not, yeah, it, it, yeah. it does matter. And to do it so creatively, I think opens, opens a lot more doors. Yeah. Just standing on a corner holding up a sign. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the creativity of it and, and where possible trying to make the fact that it's non-violent and doing no harm obvious. You know, sometimes Extinction Rebellion comes in for critiques because they'll put uh, dyes down to represent blood, but they are plant, they're plant-based vegetable dyes. So they do wash away and they're non-toxic and, and things. But, you know, people can obviously see that and think, oh gosh, but that's harmful. And it's trying to balance that. It's trying to balance doing things that get attention, that are delightfully disruptive without causing harm, without, to my mind, disrupting the wrong people so that it has the wrong impact. Some people would disagree with that. Some people would say, actually, you know, the cause is just enough that it doesn't matter who we disrupt. And that's where there's a spectrum of opinions. And also where it's really important to remember that Extinction Rebellion is an autonomous organisation. So as long as you agree, act within the principles, each group can do whatever they want. And there are actions 
which the majority of people have said, no, we don't think that should go ahead, but it's gone ahead anyway, because that group have decided they felt that it is a value and afterwards have either reflected and said it was or acted and said, actually, you were right. That was a mistake. It was the wrong action to take. But, you know, we make mistakes and we learn from them and we move forwards. I think, you know, the criticisms that are rallied against the actions, when you look at the level of destruction that's happening around the world globally in the names of making money, uh, whether it be deforestation, pollution of our rivers, the way humans are exploited in, in terms of labour and living conditions, there are so many ways in which there is massive destruction on our planet that I think I can understand why some people think that anything we did in, in, name, in the name of pro protest is justified, but not everyone would agree with that. And so would you do, what would you do differently if you were in London in front of the Houses of Parliament? I think most of the things we've done in central London have been have been perfectly justifiable. I'm thinking more just in terms, because of the examples you gave of what you did locally mm. were delightfully disruptive yeah. and very creative. And so I'm just thinking of, well, what were some of the things that you did in front of the places of power? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. in, in, in the Houses of Parliament, we had, we had our own people's parliament. So uh, there was a stage set up with speakers and, and different people spoke. So it was, a, it was a real place to go to think about the, the different areas. This was back uh, last April, in the uh, year before last. So that was a place of, a very much a place of discussion. It was a very family-friendly place. But there were other places. Oxford Circus was amazing. I mean, in terms of being delightfully disruptive, there was the huge pink boat, which has become a real symbol um, and when the police eventually took the boat away, people turned up with signs saying, we are the boat. Um, and this big pink boat was used as, as, a, as, a, as a stage, basically. And people came and spoke. We had celebrities, for better or for worse, came and spoke at it. We had poetry and we had music. And to have right in the middle of London, in the middle of the heart of the shopping area, having this kind of disco happening was... Just incredible. And that drew so many people in. And I think one of the things the police found very hard about dispersing that was the fact that protesters were so mixed in with general public that it was really hard to identify who was who. So that was really clever in the way that that worked. And the boat stayed there quite an incredible length of time before it was eventually, uh, eventually they managed to take it away. It obviously had people who were, you know, were willing to be sort of glued on and locked onto it and, and things like that. So, and I think some of the incredible things, some of the the older generation who have done things that are, you know, the, the kind of the grandparents for future movement has been really inspiring. You know, it's not, there's a misconception that it's just a bunch of young hippies. And often, often they, you know, you hear people say, oh, they should all go and get jobs. And at one point I was holding a banner with a lawyer, a doctor, Another teacher, um, a retired, you know, people who were retired professional scientists and people who had, you know, kind of more standard jobs, <laughs> I suppose, as opposed to professional jobs, you know, kind of uh, people who worked in industry and and tradespeople. But it was such and students and it was such a diversity of people stood that you kind of think people have actually given up their holidays. They've taken annual leave to go and do this because they think it's so important. So I think it's really important to remember um, that it's a real a real mix of people. I think one of the areas we stand to improve, and we, you know, there's been a lot of movement looking to improve, is about increasing diversity within the movement, um, ethnic diversity within the movement, because obviously the emphasis on being disruptive makes it much higher risk. I think we've now recognised that that's actually much higher risk for people of, of you know, black or other ethnic yes. backgrounds, you know, whereas as, as you know, essentially a white female teacher, I can stand in front of a police officer with relatively little fear in the UK. That wouldn't be the case in other countries. But, you know, for, for people of from other backgrounds, actually, they, you know, that's that's an example of my white privilege that I'm able to do that. So partly I think it's important that I do that because I can, but also as a movement, we need to recognize how we make ourselves inclusive and, and enable everyone to participate in a way that is safe for them. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's a big focus at the moment.
and then also how to get the conversation back to climate change yes. because yes. the coronavirus really sucked all the oxygen out of the room is the expression yes especially in the spring the mere the mention of climate change would almost get this eye rolling of, yes. oh go away person we don't want to hear about it we it's all we can do to deal with this one crisis that is so in our face right now and yes the coronavirus is in our face and it needs to be dealt with but the climate change didn't you know the 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 effects of climate change didn't suddenly stop and say, we'll wait for you. It may have stopped a little bit because we've all stopped or, or, or slowed, not stopped. It may have slowed a tiny fraction. I think there was, a, there was a moment of real hope as we were in lockdown here in the UK and we all shifted and suddenly there was time and suddenly I didn't have, I mean, my car eventually when I did try and drive it again wouldn't start because I, you know, my horses are a mile away and when I'm at work, with, you know, my school is too far away uh, to to cycle to, so I car share with a colleague. But then because I'm already in the car, I, you know, I would tend to drive to the horses or she would drop me off there. And all of a sudden I had time and I could walk or cycle to the horses. And I discovered all of these routes, these different routes I'd never done before over the common to get to the horses and, and, and started to meet these people who were also out for their daily exercise. And that was my daily bit of human contact to chat to somebody on the way to and from the horses, because obviously that was allowed exercise to go and, and care for them. And I think it was this moment where we all thought, oh, everyone might suddenly realize that we don't need so much stuff and we don't need to fly and we don't need to drive everywhere. And I think there's been a, a bit of that. I've certainly seen a lot of friends posting about how amazing their staycations have been in They've stayed in the UK and gone camping or gone, now that we're allowed to travel, they've, they've gone to like a B&B, you know, gone, gone to some other part of the country and stayed somewhere. And I think, you know, there have been positive impacts. But at the same time, I think more recently, the conversations I've been having with other, you know, climate educators and, and activists has been, we're missing our moment or we've missed our moment. Um, we're not quite sure how we should have grabbed that moment and what it is we should have done while we had everybody. But yeah, things are going back to business as usual far too much. We got pushed there by the by the powers that be, as it were, yes. here in this country. Oh, yeah. we have to open the economy. We have to yeah. open the economy. We have to open the economy at any cost. And and and, and let's not pause and think about how we want to reopen the economy so that it works better for us mm. so that we're really thriving. No, it's we've got to reopen the economy and whatever jobs you were doing before, no matter how much you hated them and how little they paid, we need to get going again. And of course, they open the economy too fast and we're, we've got the virus resurging. But there wasn't that, there wasn't that thoughtful, okay, we, we've taken this pause, now what do we want? to do in moving forward yeah so yeah we did kind of lose the moment and and there's still that i think somewhat of that sense of eye rolling of we don't want to hear about a crisis yeah you know it, it, unless it's right in our face uh we don't want to we don't want to think about it we don't want to think about climate change yeah and and we need to think about climate change because say the climate change isn't going to stand back and wait for us and, and so, yes, there was that, you know, I would have posts from people who lived out in California who were commenting on they could how clear the air was, that they could see the hills off in the distance that, you know, they had almost didn't realize were there because the air was so much clearer, how much quieter things were. There wasn't the airplane traffic in the sky, that weren't all the vehicles running. And isn't this, ah, just lovely. But when you look at the actual effect that the slowdown has had on the carbon production and so on, it's not been as much as we would hope. No. So, so that focus, um, yeah, we need to bring that focus back on the climate change crisis and come up with creative ways 
of talking about it so that people are open again to thinking about what can we do about climate change. Yeah. yeah. And and it is just, it's it's such a I mean you can completely understand why people want to deny it. Uh, or not even if they don't actually deny that it's happening, but to be in denial about it. Because it is huge and terrifying and you know i regularly have moments where i just sit and think this you know where you you have that sense of hopelessness about it but then you can't stay in that because that's their way to live (laughs) and you know and and so then it's it's back to learning and trying things and making mistakes and trying something else and and making sure that there's lots of us doing different things and and being i think being open about how you are or we are or i am changing what i'm doing so it's it's kind of that delicate balance of trying to recognize my own hypocrisy in certain respects you know i do still have a car because i can't work out how to you know, I use my I use my car for a lot of work down the field. I can't quite work out how I could live without it yet. I'm in a rural area, so we don't have good public transport. Um, but I can use it as little as possible, and I can cycle and walk as much as possible, which I, thanks to lockdown, I've realised is more achievable. So we can kind of, yeah, recognise that we are all imperfect and try not to beat ourselves up about that, but also try to make those changes and be open about those changes. Um, You know, I've done everything from, you know, when someone said, why did I move house? My answer was climate change. I was living in a cottage, a little cottage, right on a main road, which was the reason I could afford it. And I had to drive everywhere because I was on a main road. And it was slightly bigger than I needed because it had two bedrooms, even though one was tiny. And so I've moved into a flat in town where I can walk to the local independently owned shops for my food. There's a communal garden. So what was wasteland out the back, I've over lockdown built and created raised beds and an an allotment area, which the building I live in is a mix of private and council tenants. And so, you know, I've said to everyone, just pick, you know, pick what you want to help yourselves. Um, So, you know, kind of that. And, and, and I had this young lad who lives in this building who's, um, yeah, been in a bit of trouble. I think, I don't think he'd mind me saying. And he was sat outside smoking, watching me pick some salad leaves and things. And he, and I said, Oh, I'm just going up. I'm going to have, you know, make salad for my lunch. And he said, Is that, is that what you do with that then? Is it? <laughs> I was like, Uh, yep. I eat it. And he's like, All oh, right. Oh, I don't really eat veg, but that's cool. And I was like, Okay, great. So, you know, I don't know what he thought I was doing with it, possibly bombing <laughs> it up and smoking it. But, but, uh, but, but yeah, just that kind of, that kind of living your, your truth and making the changes and being open about them and talking to people about them is, is also a huge part of it. And I know that in Italy, when I Euro railed my way to Italy last summer, I know it, it had, it, created some really interesting conversations around flying and and I had to come to terms with the fact that being positive about changes I'm making sometimes will have negative impacts on others regardless of how I frame it in that other people may feel guilty because I've made a change that they're not yet ready or able to make right, right. and I can do my best to frame it as well as I can but at the same time I can't take all responsibility for others' reactions to the changes I've made. So I, while I won't shame anyone for flying, I will talk about the fact that I don't fly anymore because I don't see that I have a need to. Does that mean I'm dogmatic about it and would never fly? I don't know. There may be a reason that it was the most sustainable way to get somewhere I needed to go. But at the moment, I see right. no reason why I need to fly anywhere. And when you think about when you were talking earlier about how much you learned from going to Singapore. And, yeah. You know, so was that experience worth getting on an airplane? Yeah. So and that was a 
big justification. That was a big thought. You know, I was offered this amazing opportunity to go there for free, and I wasn't sure whether I should do it because of the flying. Yeah. So and that yet, was a big process I had to go through with myself sort of thing. Yeah, because there is value in traveling to other cultures. Mm. There absolutely is. And then, of course, there is the downside of flying yeah. and the carbon footprint. So, you know, finding the balance in all of these things is uh, is not easy. No. And uh, to live a life that is to a high ethical standard without hypocrisy in this culture is extremely difficult. Yeah. Uh, because basically it means that you have to grow your own food, create your own fiber, etc., cetera, et cetera, yeah. which doesn't leave any time left over for all of the educational uh, exchanges that are also part of an important part of life or earning a living or, you know, all of those things. Though I suppose one could argue that earning a living is, well, we need to shift what that means. Yeah, so it's it's a challenge always. And But what is important is to see people like yourself who are modeling this, where we can say, oh, oh, I'm not stuck in this cottage on the main road where I have to drive everywhere. I could, I could move. What a novel idea. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not stuck in the reality that I've created, that I could create a reality that works better. And I'm realizing that there's a there's gray areas. I think I'm a big proponent for gray areas in life. People, I think social media is terrible for creating black and white. You know, it's one opinion or the other. You know, um, I you know Last year, I, I became vegan, but I also consider myself somewhat freegan because if a friend has made a cake, I'm going to eat a bit of the cake. Yes. <laughs> so I'm yes. not going to be fundamentalist about this. You know, I in, within my house, I am as much as possible trying to source things locally and ethically and, you know, and, and being vegan. But when I go out to somebody else, I, I don't want my presence to become neg a negative experience for them because I'm saying, oh, no, I don't want that. And I don't want, you know, my friends are brilliant at trying to accommodate what I'm trying to do. And they understand it. And they're also trying to do their own things. But I do think it's really important that we forgive ourselves and recognize that there are gray areas in all this. And we're doing the best that we can. And, and any step in the right direction is a step in the right direction. Yes. Yes. And all of those steps add up and matter. Yeah. 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 Because otherwise, we'd never take any steps because it's all too big. Right. And we would then end up shutting a lot of people down. Yeah. You know, well, I don't eat meat and you do. And yeah. uh, therefore, you are a, a you know, bad person. That, that just talk about slamming doors closed. Yeah. Nobody wants, nobody wants no. to hear that. No, we, I think if I can encourage people to do anything, it's to try to be that voice of reason in the middle. Not, not, the, not the devil's advocate, because that doesn't go well, but that, that kind of that person who, who tries to help people find the middle ground in conversations, particularly on social media. And, and it is, I mean, last week I had a really lovely message from someone who I didn't know, who sent me a message saying, thank you for being an ally and for putting a, a reasonable comment. And, and this was trying to balance between friends who are feminist and friends who are, who are in the trans community. And so there's all these areas of life where people are becoming really split and divided. And we need people actively working to bring people together rather than us all standing on our own little bits of island going, this is how it should be. You know, we, we need to try to find the common ground between us. And that's why I think so. I mean, I, you know, I've loved reading the, the Gabe Brown book, even though, you know, I'm a vegan and it's all about beef cattle and things. But it's still fascinating and it's still, you know, and there's still so much I can apply to the horses. And yeah, it's, it's, there's still so much to learn from each other, even when we're in different places and, and from different positions. That's right. That's right. I think that is a great note to end this conversation on. It's a perfect place to, to say, my goodness, we've covered a lot of good. <laughs> and 
What a great conversation. And thank you immensely. Oh, we, we didn't even really talk about horses. <laughs> no. That's, well, a... <laughs> that's a, another whole conversation. Yeah. Yes. yes. Forest, forest gardens and horses at some point we'll talk about. As a... That's right. That's right. You have to bring the horses in, especially yeah. now, that, now that you have an IC. Yes. Yes. Which is all your fault, of course, <laughs> in the best possible way. I know. <laughs> Oh well, there, it's a it's a good thing to have. Yeah. So we'll we'll definitely have to have that conversation. But I think for today, yeah. uh, this is a good place to end. So and you know something I've wanted, I've uh, I wanted to have this conversation since I started Horses for Future. But you were on my. Uh, I want to. I I know that Kate has an enormous amount to share, and I was right. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank yeah. you for giving me the opportunity, the opportunity to share it. Yes, well, you're very welcome. So we will do it again when we can talk about horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we recorded this podcast in early August, and I have to say, this has been such a strange year. It's now just the middle of September, but August seems like an ocean of time ago. In the podcast, I talked about my friends in California who were commenting in the spring on how clear the air was when the lockdown began. The irony of that, California is now burning. And here in New York, a continent away, the sky is hazy from the smoke. I can't imagine what it must be like to be on the West Coast. The coronavirus pushed aside any conversations about climate change, and the fires have brought them back again. We need to have those conversations. We can't keep denying climate change. For those of you listening to this podcast in the U.S., please vote this fall. That is one action we can take that can have a huge impact on our future. Be an advocate for the planet. Make your voice heard. Horse people can make a difference. We just have to decide that that's what we're going to do. Our horses get us outside. They take us beyond the paddock gate, out into the natural world. We are indeed fortunate to have them in our lives. They help us to remember our deep connection to the planet. We don't have to share the same training values to have our horses remind us how beautiful this planet is. So let's decide, each of us, in our own way, to make a difference in the climate change crisis. Mm-hmm.